0: If you've got a Bible, open with me, if you will, to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 22, Genesis 22. We're going to be looking at a father's obedience. And as you're turning there this morning, I'm just going to remind you guys this will be my last Sunday for a little while. I'm going to be heading out on the sabbatical. Uh, technically, before I head out on the sabbatical, I'll be preaching at a camp next week together with Pastor Rick Holland and Dale Johnston, who's the president of ACBC in Illinois, so you guys can pray for me. It'll be a great opportunity to speak to Camp Ascend, about a thousand students or so from the Kansas City and St. Louis area. So that'll be like one more ministry thing that we do. And then then we take a a month off. We're gonna be gone for about five or six weeks after that. It's a sabbatical uh, for those of you who, if this is new information, about every five years the church has been gracious to kind of give us a little bit of a break to catch our, catch our breath, spend some special time together as a family. Uh, we're going to be mainly in California and just kind of heading out to the beach and to the mountains and, and uh, just kind of recouping and, and uh, resting and still interacting with some of you from time to time. But I won't be here on a Sunday's and so we have some great speakers lined up. Next week, we're gonna ha- hear from Dan Dumas. He'll be here next Sunday morning and Sunday night. And then we ha- we're gonna hear from, from our team for a little bit. We've got a couple of sermons that are gonna be uh, from Pat Hamlin, a couple of sermons from Mark Madrid, a couple of sermons from Josh Dogero, and so you guys are gonna be well fed from, from our elder team and from Josh, our associate pastor. And I know those guys are gonna do a great job. And I, if I could just be honest, I'm missing you already. You know, sitting there thinking like, I don't really, you know, necessarily feel like I, I need to go, but I think it's just healthy. It's healthy to, as a senior pastor, to just take a break, take a breather, worship at other churches, other than that first camp I told you about. And then I'll be at Camp Ascend with our students in Glorieta, New Mexico. That kind of bookends our sabbatical So other than those two camps, you know, we'll be worshiping at other churches as we travel. We'll be out a lot over the weekend. We always try to find a like-minded church close by, and uh, I think it's just healthy. It's healthy for me. I I think it's healthy for you. Uh, I think it's healthy for our elder team to get to preach some. They've been kind of excited about this and chomping at the bit, uh, trying to arm wrestle me for a Sunday morning here and there, and so they're going to have their opportunity this summer, and I know that you'll be well-fed, well-cared for. Uh, Thanks again for praying for us, and we'll be praying for you guys as well, all right? So this morning, Father's Day message, we're looking at a father's obedience, and you probably know already that we're talking about Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac. That's what this chapter's about, and so I think I'm just going to read it. I'm going to read the chapter, and then we're going to go through it. We have five major points that we'll be looking at, but let's just familiarize ourselves with this, this story, the this sacrifice of Isaac. Here's what we read in verse one. After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham... And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kimuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jiplaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel followed fathered Rebecca, these eight Milka bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ramah, uh, before uh, Ruma, excuse me, before Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Mekah. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to read Genesis 22. It just does our soul good to read the whole chapter and already see before us an incredible picture of the substitute of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would be the Lamb that would be sacrificed in our place so that we could have eternal life. I pray that you would use this passage, this story, this obedience of Abraham to encourage us and to challenge us today as we certainly want to honor and, and be a blessing and to challenge our dads this morning. Pray you be glorified in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Father's Day will always take a back seat to Mother's Day. That's just the way it is, right? On Mother's Day, you have everyone rolling out the red carpet. It's a perfect day for moms. I mean, it can start off with breakfast in bed, cards and gifts from the kids, a nice special gift from the husband. You take mom out to their favorite restaurant, and pretty much the rest of the day is a sacred holiday, and moms can do no work. Father's Day, let's just say that sometimes Groundhog's Day gets more attention (laughs) than Father's Day. No, I'm just kidding. You know we honor our dads, but sometimes it can feel like that a little bit, and I think that's the way it should be, right? We want to honor our moms over our dads. But this is a special day, and I want to honor our dads this morning. And while this message is certainly for everyone, I have a special challenge for fathers today. And on this Father's Day, I want to talk to you about a father's obedience. When we think about the topic of obedience, many of us think too often unfortunately, about the required obedience of a young child to his mom or dad. And for those of us who have children in the home, we have a preoccupation with the clear principle in scripture that children should obey their parents at all times, Ephesians 6, one: Children, obey your parents and the Lord. And that's right, and that's good, it should be that way. We should be having a focus on our kids obeying, but the topic of obedience is not resigned to children. Right? The topic of obedience in the Bible is for moms and dads as well. So when you think about obedience, you shouldn't be thinking, Oh, I want my children to obey. I want my children to obey. I gotta teach my children to obey. That shouldn't be all you think about. You should be thinking about, man, I need to be walking in obedience. I wanna make sure I'm obeying my heavenly Father. I wanna make sure that I'm consumed with this God-glorifying truth of honoring God. As an adult, as a young adult, as a father, think of the importance and the significance of your obedience as a child of God to your heavenly Father. How often do you meditate on how you are doing, either at obeying or disobeying God's precious word? When, and in seeking to, to follow him with all of your heart as an obedient father. Do you confess your sin to God? Do you run into his presence and? And, and give him the honor and respect that he deserves. Right now, are you working hard to be to be a faithful dad? And are you being? Are you working hard just to honor him as your father? And the case is that we're talking about. We understand in training our children, it takes a lot of time. Right? It's something that takes time. You have to teach them, train them in obedience. Over time, it takes patience, it takes persistence, and it takes practice. And the point I'm trying to make is that as hard as we work to help our children follow simple, logical commands, particularly even at those younger stages of life, but one day we hope and pray that they will not only follow these commands, but any command that is ever given to them, especially those found in Scripture, even when it doesn't make sense. That's a big part of what we're trying to teach our children. Look, you need to obey God's word, obey mom and dad, even when you don't think it makes sense. And that's certainly the case of this situation this morning. It doesn't make sense. But we've got to train our kids and be trained ourselves. You know, we talk about training and obedience. I read an article not long ago about Arabian horses. I'm not a horse guy, but I had heard something about Arabian horses were super disciplined. And so they're, they're trained, uh, you know, exhaustively. And the last test of the successful training of an Arabian horse is that they would withhold water and food, water and food for several days. And then they would bring out some water for the horse to drink, knowing that it's very thirsty. And yet, before the the horse could drink the water, it would first have to come to its master. And the master would then blow the whistle in order to, to make them turn from the water to them and then just simply wait for permission to drink. And then it was only when the master gave permission that the horse could finally drink. I was just thinking like, what a trained, disciplined horse, right? It's incredible how animals can be trained like that. Well, how about you? Are we not only training our children, but as fathers, have we learned to obey and follow God's commands, even the ones that don't make sense to us? Do does our training stop? You know, when we become an adult, or are we still being trained by God's word at all times? And so this morning, I want us to look at a well-known father from the Bible who is exemplary in his obedience. And I'm talking about, obviously, the faithful obedience of Abraham. And as long as the world continues, people will be intrigued by this story of Genesis 22 because of the unique test from God to Abraham, which didn't seem to make any sense. Sacrifice, my son, my one and only son, And yet, behind this story is a deeper story. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of substitution. It's the story of salvation. You see, God would one day send his son, his one and only son, and this loving, all-wise, all-compassionate, sinless God asked his son to do the unthinkable, to give his life for sinners like you and like me. It doesn't make sense to the world, but to those who repent and believe, this points to a greater story. There's really no bigger story, no better story, no more intriguing story, no story more demanding of our attention than the story of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for sinners like you and like me. And that's what this text is ultimately pointing to. And so this morning, I want us to look at the faithful obedience of the father of a nation, Abraham and his willingness to offer up to God that which was most precious to him, his one and only son. Our outline, fairly simple. We're going to look at five characteristics of a father's faithful obedience. Number one, a father's obedience must be immediate. A father's obedience must be Immediate. We're looking at verses one through three. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So, as we dive into this first point about a father's obedience must be immediate, first I just want to go ahead and pose the big question of the elephant on the couch, so to speak, that sometimes prevents many people from receiving blessing and learning that God wants them to learn from this text. And I think the obvious question is, how can God contradict himself by asking his, 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 uh, his son, Abraham, to sacrifice his son, Isaac? It seems like a clear contradiction. How in the world could a loving God ask a father to kill his own son? I mean, hasn't God taught us, thou shalt not kill And then he tells Abraham to kill his own son. And there's many people that miss out on the whole story because they get so short-circuited into that philosophical question that they don't really benefit from the truth of the entire passage. There are many questions that could be asked. That's the main one. Why would God call Abraham to kill his own son? And there's many possible answers even to that, that realistic and fair question. Let me just give you a couple of possible answers. One would be Genesis 22 Is written before Exodus 20. So Exodus 20 is where we find the Ten Commandments, and the sixth commandment is thou shalt not kill. So just be aware. I'm just saying, I didn't say that makes the contradiction go away, but just understand that that law of thou shalt not kill had not yet been clearly uttered and written down from God to Moses on Mount Sinai. We're in Genesis 22. We're not yet got to Exodus 20. Another possible answer would be this. God didn't say kill. He said Offer. So nowhere in here does it say, even though it's understood, that he's going to kill him. I'm just saying he doesn't use the word kill. He uses the word offer. I want you to offer your son on a sacrifice. And a third potential answer would be that God changed his mind. And we see that sometimes in the Old Testament, which is just meaning from a human perspective, it appears that he changed his mind, but we know from a, du- a divine perspective, he doesn't change his mind, but he knows what's going to happen as an events unfold. There is a change from what originally seemed to be happening. And so from our perspective, it sometimes can feel like that. Now, I think those are reasonable attempts to answer the question, but I think that the best answer to the question and the best explanation for this apparent contradiction is actually found... Right here in the text, in verse 1, it plainly states that this is a, what does it say? It's a test. It says it's a test. It's right there. God tested Abraham. Now, Henry Morris, well-known commentator, wrote in in his, his commentary of Genesis, he wrote this, quote, perhaps Abraham and Sarah had come to love Isaac too much. There was a danger. They might forget God by too much attention, on, uh, by not enough attention on God's promises. God did not want Isaac slain, but he did want Abraham's full love. Therefore, God did test Abraham. Again, I believe that a proper understanding of the word test will help us understanding God's purpose. This is the first time in the Bible the word test has been used. The Hebrew word is nasah, N-A-S-A-H, nasah or nasah if you emphasize the second syllable. And it means here, this word nasah means to tempt or to do evil. But it can also mean to test as to reveal the heart. And as always, context is essential in rightly understanding words and their intended meaning. And so I would go with not the tempt to do evil because we, got, we know God tempts no one, James 1, but I would say that second definition, it means test so as to reveal the heart. I believe that would be a good lexical definition for how we should understand this word in this context. The Bible clearly states that God tests no one. I told you James 1.13, but in this context, in Genesis 22, I believe that it's abundantly clear that the intended definition of this Hebrew word means to test or to reveal. In fact, it can also be translated as it is most of the time, the same word, translated most of the time in the Old Testament, and it's translated as to prove, to prove something. So, as an engineer, for example, if you were an engineer, you may know well and full that the design will stand the stress and the strain to which it is subjected because an engineer who's done his research knows that he's designed some contraption properly. Nevertheless, the construction specifications will require that it be tested, not to assure the engineer, but oftentimes to assure the public and to pass the code that this contraption will indeed stand. And so it is with Abraham. God, God knows what's gonna happen, and he understands exactly what, how this will unplay, and he certainly knew what Abraham would do. But Abraham and Sarah and all those around them must know. And you and I need to know. And the Lord himself meant more. That, we need to know what? That the Lord himself meant more to Abraham than Isaac ever could. And if you're still struggling with how God could put Abraham through such a difficult and stringent test of faith, let's not forget that it was God himself who intervened and provided a ram so that Abraham did not have to slay his own son. And God knew all along and worked through the details all along so that Abraham would not actually kill his son, but would prove that he did love God more than he loved Isaac by going through this trial. Warren Wiersbe explains the difference that we're talking about here between temptations and trials, which he says is is the same thing, a trial is the same thing as a test. He writes this, quote, learn to distinguish between trials and temptations. Temptations come from our desires within us, James one and four, while trials come from the Lord who has a special purpose to fulfill. Temptations are used by the devil to bring out the worst in us, but trials are used by the Holy Spirit to bring out the best in us. Temptations seem logical, while trials seem very unreasonable. I think that's a helpful perspective, that this is really a test. It's given by God for his glory to reveal what's really going on in Abraham's heart. Dads, this is a lesson that you have to teach your sons and your daughters Maybe you need to make sure that you learn it first so that you can better teach it to others. I'm talking about the lesson of here that we're talking about of Abraham who had immediate obedience. Even though God was commanding something he didn't fully understand, we have immediate obedience by Abraham. In fact, let's just let me remind you a little bit of the context of what's going on in Genesis 22. We have Abraham who has moved from Mesopotamia to Beersheba, the southern part of Israel. And he has received a covenant from God and his descendants after him will receive the Abrahamic covenant containing land, seed, and blessing. And the only problem is is that Abraham didn't have any children. And there was that situation between him and Hagar, who gave birth to Ishmael, but Ishmael was not the one whom God chose to place his blessing. In Genesis 18, the Lord reappeared to Abraham, now at age 99, and told him that he is about to have a son at this same time next year. And so in Genesis 21, Sarah gives birth to Isaac at age 90, and Isaac is circumcised on the eighth day. Hagar moved away from Abraham's household with Ishmael when he was about 17 years old. Now, this brings us up to Genesis 22, where we read where it says, after these things. That's verse one. After these things, everything that I was just mentioning. And notice, even at the very end of chapter 21, verse 34, it says, and Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So after Hagar had moved out, with her son Ishmael, that we think was at least 17 years old, there were many days that passed while Abraham still sojourned in the land of the Philistines. All this points to the fact that it would have been, that Isaac, it is thought, that Isaac would have been at least 20, and he could have been as old as 37. Now think about that just for a moment, because I think typically we think about Isaac might have been like 12. Again, if you go back and do the math of how old Ishmael is and when he left and after many days he continued to sojourn, that's why a lot of the commentary say, no, 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 he's older than, he's not like a preteen and he may not even be a teenager. He's probably at least 20 and he could have been as old as 37. And it had been quite a while since Abraham at this point had heard from God. It had been a long period of silence, and you would think that maybe God would ease into this test, but God's ways are not our ways, and his approach is always perfect. And that's why we read then in verse 2. He just tells him exactly what he wants him to do. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. So we see that God is never harsh, But he is holy, and he expects to be obeyed by all of his children. And when he tells Abraham to go to the land of Moriah, this is present-day Jerusalem. Land of Moriah, present-day Jerusalem. And the mountain on which God would have Abraham sacrifice Isaac is where David would buy the threshing floor and where Solomon would later build the temple. And we get that from 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, that says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So we're starting to see some connections. We get God telling Abraham to take his son Isaac to the land of Moriah. Later we have David buying the threshing floor. Later, we have Solomon building the temple on the same mountain, in the same area. We we don't know for a fact if it was literally on the same exact spot, but it's in the same mountain range, and it could have been very easily the same general location as Mount Moriah. And as King Solomon built that first temple there, that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. It was rebuilt many years later by Zerubbabel, Ezra, and then Nehemiah period, and it was called the second temple. Uh, the second temple, and it was made beautiful by King Herod the Great, and it was actually completed during Christ's lifetime. And then that temple, the second temple, was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans, and it was left in rubble and ruins for some time, and then it was in 691 that a Muslim mosque was built there, And this piece of land was fought over during the Crusades from the 11th to the 15th century. And as most of you know, when Israel became a nation again in 1948, they were uh, a nation again, but they were actually forbidden originally to enter into the old city of Jerusalem until after the Six Days War, 1967, it was then that Israel won the rights to the city, but they left the Dome of the Rock under Muslim control as it is at the present just saying. It's pretty cool. And when you think about world history, it's all happening on this same spot. It's a real location. It's back here in Genesis 22 that we're reading about it, and we see the rich history that took place around this particular location. And notice how in verse 2, it says, the first place it's, in verse 2, it's the first place where the word love is used. He says here, take your son, your one and only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, the first time in the Bible where the word love is used, and that's significant. Henry Morris, again, in his commentary, discusses the significance of certain words and how they're used in the first time in the book of Genesis. And he refers to this concept as the principle of first mention the principle of first mention. And he points out that when an important word or concept occurs for the first time in the Bible, usually in the book of Genesis, the context of which it occurs sets a pattern for its primary usage and development throughout the rest of Scripture. And so this is the first use of the word love in the Bible, and it's obviously in a very significant passage. And what is happening here is that God is using the story of Abraham and Isaac to develop a type or a picture of the love that exists between God the Father and His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. How do we know this for sure, you ask? Well, Paul writes about it in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So he's saying that there's a promise made to Abraham, that promise we're going to look at in a minute. Of course, he's going to have a, a bunch of kids and a bunch of descendants. We know that. But the specific Abrahamic covenant is that unto you will be giving blessing, and that blessing is to your offspring, and it's meant to be singular to the person of Christ, Uh, Furthermore, this experience of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah is also confirmed by the author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19 says, "...by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who has received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son." Of whom it was said, "Through Isaac shall your offspring, singular, be named." And he considered that God was able to even raise him up from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So we're learning again, there's a particular emphasis about Abraham loving his one and only son, God loving his one and only son. This act of Abraham is a foreshadowing of the sacrifice and the resurrection. And this actual act that we see in the Old Testament points to the greater act of God sacrificing and raising his son. And it's where the word love is used, the first place in the Bible, that God so loved his son that he gave. Abraham so loved his son that he needed to be willing to give him up. In the New Testament, that same account uh, of the word love, you know, we're talking about where is the word love first used in the Old Testament, that's in this passage. The first use of the word love in the New Testament is actually the same in all three synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's at Christ's baptism. And it's at that moment that we read, for example, in Matthew 3, 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's the root word for the word love. This is my loved, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And so the only way that we can learn this morning, back to fatherhood, the only way that we can really learn to love our son as much as we love him is to look at how much God loves his son as an example of how much we ought to love our own children. And we're talking about obeying immediately. So verse three is where we see that. It says, Abraham rose early in the morning. Don't you love that? This seems to be Abraham's habit. Abraham is eager to obey God's commands, even though this was an easy command, right? Abraham was, was one that practiced immediate obedience. In Genesis 17, when God gives Abraham the sign of the covenant, being circumcision, which is also a hard thing to obey, Would you agree being circumcised might be a hard thing to obey because Abraham was an adult at this point? And yet it says in Genesis 17, 23, then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins. It says, that very day, as God had said to him. So we see a habit. God says something, Abraham obeys. That very day. After God instructed Abraham to send Sarah's slave Hagar and her son Ishmael away, in the scripture in Genesis 21:14 it says, "So Abraham rose early in the morning, and he took the bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the tri- child, and he sent her away." I'm saying, this is Abraham's habit. He obeyed right away, same day, early in the morning. He gets up here again early in the morning. It's like Abraham was following the psalm that would be written later in Psalm 119, verse 60, that says, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. That's what we ought to be running. We ought to be running to obedience. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but Lisa and I always tried to. We weren't perfect in doing this, but always tried to teach our kids, we need you to obey right away, all the way, and with the what? With a happy heart. We want you to learn to obey right away, all the way with a happy heart. And that's what we kind of see in the life of Abraham here. He's demonstrating for us immediate obedience. He got up early the next morning. In fact, look at the detail there of verse three. It took a little bit of work, right? He, when he got up early, he had to do what? Saddle the donkey. Get two of his men ready with him, his son Isaac. He had to cut the wood and bring that there to the place that God would tell him. There's detail and work involved. Again, we're just saying, fathers, are you obeying like this? I know we're trying to teach our kids obey right away, all the way with a happy heart. But do you obey like this? Because the best way your kids can learn obedience is by watching you to see your obedience to what God has said in his word. And certainly we can see that in the example of Abraham. A second characteristic of faithful obedience would be this, number two, a father's obedience must endure. It must endure, verses four through eight. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to the young man, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and he said, and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took In his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. He said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Again, a father's obedience must endure. It took them at least two and a half days to get there to travel is about 30 to 50 miles, we think, from where Abraham was to the place where God was taking him. Remember, Abraham is somewhere between 120 and 137 years old. And yet, he never turned back, he never veered off the path, he never uh, substituted uh, something else in the place of just simply obeying and pursuing the obedience that God had called him to. And when he saw it, he knew the time had come, and he just he just kept moving forward. And what I like about the passage here is that it teaches us that enduring obedience is even a, a form of worship. And we we ask, well, what do you mean it's a form of worship? Well, it shows the love and the adoration to God by obeying Him, like Jesus in John fourteen fifteen says, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." We understand if we really love God, we're going to obey him. And it's just a reminder that obedience is something that we're to keep doing for for the remainder of our lives. In a context of obedience, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so as we live our life out of obedience as a living sacrifice, that's an act of worship to God. So I'm saying that as Abraham's going to do this, he's in worship. When you're in obedience, you're in worship. When you're in disobedience, you're in rebellion. You can't be in disobedience and be worshiping God. And we're supposed to be living a lifestyle of worship. Maybe another way to say it is that Abraham's obedience was enduring was also the fact that, that Abraham was obeying even when it was tough. I mean, it's easy to obey when everything's going well. Everything's going well, I'm oh in. Sign me up. It's when it gets really tough. And ultimately, it's not for our sacrifice. God's not interested in our personal sacrifice so much as he's interested in our act of obedience, right, with the right heart. And we learn that from uh, King Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Remember, Sam, uh, Saul had been commanded to wipe out the Amalekites, including their king, Agag, along with all the animals. And Saul, Saul thought he was obeying, but he wasn't really obeying, not with enduring obedience, which is why we read in 1 Samuel fifteen twenty, it says, and Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have bought Agag, king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Well, guess what? If you just listen to Saul's testimony, you would think, well, he's a good guy. He has obeyed. Look, he did everything that God called him to do. But then he gets confronted by Samuel. The people had taken some of the spoil. They had taken some of the sheep and the oxen. The best things that were supposed to be devoted to destruction and they and they are, they were going to go make a sacrifice, thinking that would somehow please God. But then Samuel said, in First Samuel fifteen twenty-two, he said, "Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams." Again, we're learning throughout the Bible. that What God cares about is obedience. Now, it just so happens that in our text, obedience is sacrifice. But we got to understand that it's not the sacrifice in and of itself, as if God needs that aroma of the sacrifice. He wants the heart of the person who's making the sacrifice. And that's where the obedience comes from, is that we're obeying, obeying not only in our action, but we're obeying with our attitude, that's what we would try to teach our kids. Again, only God can do it through his word. But when we say we want you to obey right away, all the way with a happy heart, means it's not just good enough to complete the action of obedience. We'd like for you to try to do it with God's help through prayer and teaching and training that this is what's going to bring you joy and happiness. It comes through obeying with their right heart and their right attitude. Now, not only is obedience better than sacrifice, but obedience in particular, as we're seeing in this passage, as an enduring be- obedience. It's an act of worship. I love how this act of worship is included in verse 5, where it's written here, Abraham says, I and the boy will go over there and worship. So Again, that's where we see the connection, obedience and worship. I and the boy will go over there and worship. Also, Abraham is so confident in the promise that God had given him about being uh, the father who would, who would have land, seed, and blessing in the Abrahamic covenant and be the father of many nations, that he says, I and the boy will go over there and worship. And then it says in verse 5, and come again to you. Now, this is not in English, but if you read in the Hebrew, the original language, both worship The word worship, we're going to go worship, says I and the boy will worship and come back to you. The word worship and the word come again are in the plural, meaning it could be translated we will worship and what? We will come back to you. We are going to go worship and we are going to come back to you. Well, how can we come back to you if Isaac is truly sacrificed? And that's where we're saying Abraham distrusted God. He knew what God had promised he knew, and I believe he had faith, according to Hebrews 11, that if God was going to raise up Isaac from the dead, then he was going to raise up Isaac from the dead. That's what Hebrews says. Remember Hebrews 11:17. 17? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and when he had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, it's inferred there that he knew that he might even be resurrected. And so we understand here that we're both going, and we're both worshiping, and we're both returning. And my friends, I think that's good discipleship. This is what we're do. We're gonna do this together. It's not me me following God and you just kind of do your own thing or I'm just gonna drag you along. No, we're both going. We're gonna both worship and we're gonna both come back to you. Abraham's faith and his obedience stays strong even as he comes to the last steps of his mission. And we're looking again at verses four through eight where verses six, seven, and eight, there, there, there they are together. It's father and son. They're walking to Mount Moriah together, and people have been asking the same question that Isaac asks through the centuries. I love how Isaac, again, notices as he's got the fire and the knife, and he asks that question, um, you know, behold, the fire and the wood, where is the lamb for a burnt offering or or for an offering? Where is the lamb um, for the offering? Yeah, it does say burnt. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? So I just love this question, right? Where is the lamb for the offering? And I'm saying people have been asking that same question that Isaac has been asking throughout the centuries. Where is the lamb? The Old Testament prophets asked this question. The New Testament Jews asked this question. People today still answer this question. And the answer is God will provide the lamb. I like how Abraham answers that in verse 8. He's like, God will provide. He didn't say, Hey, it's you. I mean, he, he's intending to do that, but I'm just saying he's always just trusting God. His language is very careful. God will provide a lamb because remember, this whole story, this whole picture is something bigger than just what's going on between Abraham and Isaac. God will provide the lamb. John the Baptist answered the question, where is the lamb, when he said in John 1 29, when he saw Jesus approaching while he was baptizing at the River Jordan, and he said what? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The only way to have enduring obedience is to behold the lamb. You can't obey like this if you don't have faith and you can't have faith unless God gives it to you. And God only gives it to you when you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you're a father here this morning and you're trying to obey God in your own strength, but you can't do it in your own strength. And maybe you're trying to sacrifice for God with your own provision. Don't forget that God will provide for himself the lamb. And God will provide you with the ability And the desire to obey by first giving you salvation through Jesus Christ and then transforming your heart and then giving you the opportunity through his provision to walk in obedience to his word. But he wants our obedience to endure throughout the completion. And that kind of overlaps with number three. We're now looking at a father's obedience must be complete. So, a father's obedience is immediate. It endures even when it's tough, and it's complete. Does Abraham complete the action? Well, let's read verse 9 through 12. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your one and only son, from me. Again, this text talks about that they finally arrive at the place, so again, it's a specific place where God wanted this to happen, because I believe he's gonna build history on this place, with the threshing floor, with the temple, and with one more thing I'm gonna tell you about in a minute. So Abraham built this altar at the place that God had designed, and then Abraham bound his son. Remember, he's probably not 12, he's 20. And this would be like Matthew Brayman trying to somehow bound Patrick. I think Patrick can take Matthew, no offense, but I've seen him in the gym. So I'm just saying, can you imagine if there was a physical struggle you know, can you imagine a 20-year-old son? And so this is obvious, but it's not a struggle. It's not a physical struggle, but he did bind his adult son, which shows all kinds of humble obedience. It shows what the father had taught the son all along. That, look, Isaac maybe didn't have the divine revelation that Abraham had, but he trusted that whatever his dad's doing is what God wanted him to do, and so therefore there seems to be a certain willingness. Is there a curiosity? Yes, Is there probably some consternation in his heart? I'm assuming so, but there's no resistance. There's no resistance at all when he's being willing to to, to go and to be bound by his father. It kind of reminds us the willingness of Isaac to die certainly is a reminder of Christ's willingness to go to the cross. Like in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. Again, this charge I have received from my father. So Isaac is willingly coming and just offering his life as well. And then we see that Abraham stretches out the knife. That that, that phrase there is a a picture of him, as you see it in all the the picture books, right? If his knife is up in the air, like he stretches it out. He's going to do it. This is obeying all the way. Abraham did exactly what God called him to do. He didn't go part way. He didn't go halfway. He did it all the way. He completed his particular obedience because then he obeys what verse 12 says, right? At that point, if he did go through with it, he'd be disobeying God's intervention in that moment to say, don't lay your hand on the boy. So we're saying that Abraham was completely obedient in every way to do exactly what God called him to do in real time. Abraham built the altar, he laid the wood, he bound Isaac, he laid him on the altar, he reached out his hand, he raised the knife, and then he didn't kill him. Because at the very end, God says, don't do it. Don't do it. Do you fully obey God in your life? You see, God wants all of you. He doesn't just want part of you. God wants your whole heart. He wants your whole mind. He wants your whole soul. He wants all of you and all of your effort, and all of your obedience, and he wants it every day, all day, for the rest of your life. What is it this morning that you might be tempted to hold back from God? Are you obeying him completely in your life? You know, sometimes you have to be willing to give something up in order to see God's blessing in your life. You you gotta be willing to sacrifice in order to receive God's blessing, because if you're not willing to give up, then it may be that you're holding too tight and God's not gonna bring further blessing because you're no longer walking in obedience. You may need to consider giving up your love for sports or giving up your love for video games or giving up your love for social media. You may need to give up your love for alcohol or your love for marijuana or your love for drugs. You may need to be giving up whatever it is, right? Whatever it is that's holding you back from going all in with God. It's Paul saying to the Philippians in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. I mean, that's where it's at, and this is a picture of it. Abraham's like, I'm going to give it all up. That's what God called of him. That's what God calls of us. Nothing else matters in this life except loving God and obeying God. And nothing else will ever bring you joy like complete obedience to God. Again, this is an extreme obedience. It's an enduring obedience. And it's here to emphasize, again, that Abraham took it to the very end before God intervened through the angel of the Lord, as the text says, which could have been even a pre-incarnate, presence of Christ himself. Sometimes when the angel of the Lord, it could be even the Lord himself. Either way, we understand at this moment, the test is over. Now Abraham's faith and his obedience have been tested and proven true more than ever. Abraham made an A plus on this test. He did exactly what God called him to do. He did it promptly and he did it completely. And I believe that Abraham did it with a happy heart, a heart of worship. Because he knew the goodness of God and the promises of God. And so now it's abundantly clear for us all to see that God is the most important thing in Abraham's life. Abraham was willing to sacrifice that which was most precious to him in order to worship God and God alone. God's love for us was complete and he held back nothing as well. When God offered his son, God went through that which he told Abraham not to go through with. How is it? that not a contradiction? Well, the gospel wasn't just a test. The gospel is a triumph of God bringing about his perfect will. He didn't want Abraham to do it because he was going to do it himself. He was going to do it in his own way. It pleased the Lord to crush his son, Isaiah 53. It pleased the Lord that he would even put him to grief when his soul makes an offering of guilt, and he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in the land. It's Romans eight thirty two. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God gave his only son for us. He did what he told Abraham not to do. God killed his son for our redemption. It was this Jesus, Acts 2.23, that was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Again, I think just devotionally, what is your Isaac this morning? What is it that you would not be willing to let go of? What is it that you hold in your hands so tightly that you love so much that you would not be able to obey God completely? Is it your job or your house or your desire to be married or your desire to get into a certain program or your desire to have a certain thing happen in your life? Is it a fear maybe of going into the ministry, of going on the mission field, of something that God would be calling you to and you're just not sure because that's so uncomfortable? And sometimes God will call you to give up that desire and that comfort and that goal in your life for something better. Sometimes he wants you to give up that that you're holding on to because you think that's what brings you pleasure. That's what brings you joy. And God wants you to give it up because he's got something better for you. Look, before I was a pastor, you guys know I was a PA. Do you think it was hard for one second to be like, you know what, I gotta give up a career of training and working and a nice salary and a lot of respect in the community to go be a pastor. Well, initially, when I started thinking about it, that's a scary thought. I'm going to give up my career. I'm going to move out of state to go to seminary. Maybe God's going to call me to Africa. I mean, it's not like your first thought is like, bring it on, Lord. You know, in the initial, you're like, I don't know. Is that the Lord? Or is that just, you know, I might just feeling like, I don't know what that is. And you keep thinking about it. And you keep praying about it. I'm just saying, I don't know what God's called you to do. I mean, I know he hasn't called you out of the state of California. I know that. No, it's You know, But I mean, God, whatever it is that's in your life, are you willing to give that up for the glory of God? This is an incredible challenge that we should focus on, even though we're looking at Christ, we're looking at the substitution, atonement. It's beautiful passage, but there's still that, man, am I really, would I be willing to do that? Would I be willing to give it all up no matter what? May, but God may, might use that. He might use that to bless you immensely in your life because blessings flow through obedience. They don't flow through you hanging on to all the things and all the treasures in your life that you think you have to have. Blessing comes from giving it up. And when you give it up, then all you have is God and all you want is God. And so let's look at a fourth characteristic of obedience. Number four, a father's obedience must be dependent It must be dependent, verses 13 and 14. It says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So what we mean here by saying that a father's obedience must be dependent is that you must ultimately be depending on God to help you obey what it is that God's called you to do. From the very beginning, Abraham had been trusting God. He had been trusting God to provide him with the land of Canaan. He had been trusting God to provide him with a place to feed his cattle. He had been trusting God for a son, even in his old age, and he had been trusting God now that even in the midst of this sacrifice, that God would somehow continue to provide. And you must Trust that the Lord will provide. And at every moment when you need it, God will provide what it is that you need. That's what God does. God always provides. He is, as this passage says, Jehovah Jireh, our provider. God provides you with everything that you have. God provided you with your parents and with your family and with your spouse and with a place to live and with food and with clothing and every opportunity to, to, to work or to be in school. But the most important thing that God could ever provide would be eternal life. You know, sometimes we short circuit a little bit, oh, Jehovah Jireh, he'll provide all my needs, and we think about clothing, money, finances, and those things are important. And I just said, I believe God provides those for us. But what's the most important provision? It's eternal life. Jehovah Jireh is about God offering eternal life, a sacrifice, that's the message that's being sent here. It's not like Abraham needed stuff. You read about Abraham? He's pretty rich. He's got a lot of stuff. This isn't like, oh, God, I just need, I need, I need. It's like, no, he needed a fresh message from God. He needed a fresh picture of the substitutionary atonement of his son. He needed to be reminded that this promise that God was giving to him was something bigger than just something else Abraham could add to his collection. He's giving him this picture of eternal life. And notice, how Abraham never said again to Isaac, he never said, you're the sacrifice, and said, Abraham always answers by faith, saying, God will provide. That's kinda like saying, God will take care of it. Our job is to obey, God's job is to provide. Our job is to walk by faith, God's job is to meet our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Our job is to trust, it's God's job to carry out his plan day by day. And if you're not obeying and having faith in God, then you are obeying out of the wrong motive. And Abraham obeyed immediately by faith, And so can you with Christ's help in his power and for his glory. And I'm saying it starts with salvation. That's the ultimate gift that God gives. And then God continues to give throughout our sanctification to help us obey God and to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which he's called us. And when we step out in faith and obey God like Abraham did, then we will learn new things about God that we've never known before. Do you think if Abraham didn't obey that he would have ever known God as Jehovah-Jireh? He would have missed that opportunity. And yet because he walked in obedience and he he fully obeyed, he's learning new things about God that he never knew before. This is the first place where we see the word Jehovah-Jireh mentioned in scripture. It means God will see to it or that God will take care of it or that God will provide. And so here Abraham learns more about God and about his provision, and we learn more about God as well. We benefit from Abraham's obedience. In fact, this is the first of seven compound names of God given in the Old Testament. Number one, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Number two, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord heals you. That's in Exodus 15, 26. After God had delivered the the Israelites from Pharaoh, he promised to heal them and, and as opposed to bringing the diseases upon them like he did the Egyptians, so that number two is Jehovah Rapha, and you could just Google this if you don't want to write it all down. They'll come up. There's lots of good resources on the internet. What are the names of God in the Old Testament? Number three, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord my banner, Exodus 17:8 through 15. Number four, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace, Judges 6:24. Number five, Jehovah Roy, The Lord, my shepherd, Psalm 23. Number six, Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness, Jeremiah 23, verse six. And number seven, Jehovah Shema, the Lord is present, Ezekiel 48, 35. And the reason that's such an incredible study is because each one of those is an incredible time in scripture where God's like, let me show you something new about myself. Let me show you something that maybe you didn't know before because God gives us these names of God, and this is when we learn in this passage to trust in God and to depend upon Him. And when you obey Him, I mean, it's one thing to study God in in, in the Scripture didactically, like the book smarts, like to study the Bible. It's another thing to walk in obedience, and both of them bring you more knowledge about God. When you just study, 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 but you're not walking by faith, you're going to miss some of that, oh, God's now revealing himself through the obedience as I'm learning how his word applies even in this moment. I mean, obedience is never meant to be cold and indifferent. It's meant to be heartfelt and exciting that when you step out in faith and you walk in obedience, you're gonna see God do amazing things in your life. I mean, maybe it's trusting God for the money to go on a short-term mission trip, or to camp, or maybe it's just applying for a school or a program that only God could put you in. Maybe it's obeying God in your, in, your, in your romantic area of your life. Just say, I'm gonna trust God with that. I don't know who I'm gonna marry, if I'm gonna get married, but I gotta give this over to the Lord because he's gonna provide what he wants, when he wants, but my job is to walk in obedience. Number five, a father's obedience will be rewarded. We don't have time to unpack this fully, but man, I'm telling you, in verses 15 through 23, it actually talks about because Abraham did what he did, that's part of why God responded like he responded. In fact, let me give you three, you can write these down as subpoints if you want, of how Abraham's obedience was rewarded. Number one, it's rewarded by a fresh word from God. A fresh word from God. Look at verse 15. The angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven. You know what we do when we see this text? We just remember the first time. We remember the first time. Oh, he told Abraham, don't kill your son. And now that Abraham obeyed it, now this is second time. God's like, I got something else to tell you, Abraham. Let me tell you something else. Notice the second time is after the obedience. You know, well, the first time I guess was after the, you know, he's telling him, don't kill your son. I know you're fully obedient. But the second time, he gets a fresh word from God. I mean, God speaks directly to Abraham eight times in the Bible but this is the last time. What a beautiful thing to hear from God. I mean, I believe that the biggest roadblock in hearing from God is a life of disobedience. I believe that people who aren't walking in obedience, they don't hear from God, even if they're in their Bible, because their consciences have been seared and they're, and they're disinterested in really thinking about what it is God's saying through his word. But when you're obedient and when you walk by faith and walk in obedience, God's like, I have gotta tell you something else. Let me reveal something else to you. This is James 4, 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's saying, get right with God. Get your heart right, and then you're gonna hear and sense the presence of God, and you guys know I'm saying he's gonna speak to you through his word, right? It's always gonna be, he's gonna bring scripture more to bear in your life, but you're gonna get that fresh word from God as you walk in obedience. The second way God rewarded Abraham's obedience is number two, he gave reassurances of God's promises. Verses 16 through 19, he's reassuring the promises. Basically, one offspring, that will be Christ, but in addition to that, there's land he's going to give, there's seed, which is Christ, and that seed of Christ will be a universal blessing through salvation to the whole world. And In verses 16 through 19, again, it says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this. Notice it's... It seems that God's saying this is partly contingent on your obedience. Because you have done this, you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand it is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, that's where it goes singular, "shall shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because... You have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went t- together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Again, I'm just saying a reassurance of these promises. God swears by himself, which is the highest power in the universe, that I will greatly bless you. The naked eye can see about 3,000 stars. But then God adds to it the sand. And the sand that exists on earth would be like 10 to the 25th power. And there's more stars than the naked eye can see. But I'm just saying, God's saying, look, you see the stars? You can only see about 3,000. But then he says, hey, you see the sand and the beaches? I'm going to give you more than that. The inheritance that I'm giving. He's doubling down on the promise that he's going to give to Abraham. The third thing that God blesses us with is this. Number three, a blessing for his immediate family a blessing for his immediate family. You say, Adam, what are you talking about? Well, verse 20 to 23, now after these things, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah also, who has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, and Buzz, his brother. I'm just waiting for somebody in our church to say, we got Uz and Buzz. What's your firstborn's name? Oh, he's Uz. How about that one? That's Buzz. Buzz. Somebody, I think, you, I think you ought to do it. I'm telling you. You can have a lot of fun. Right? Us is firstborn, Bus is brother, Kimuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jiplaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel followed Rebekah, these eight, Milka, and Nahor, Abraham's brother. You say, Adam, I didn't get anything out of that. Well, let me just help you for a quick second. All right? God provided a godly son to 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 Abraham and Isaac. And then God provided that son a godly wife. He provides, this passage is telling us a little bit about how not only do I promise you a son, but I'm promising you that son's gonna have a spouse because we know already Isaac's not gonna be single. And if everybody in the Bible, we know Isaac has not been given the gift of singleness if this blessing's gonna continue. So that means God's already thinking ahead of, hey, I got you, Isaac. I got you, Rebecca, an excellent wife. Who can find? She's more precious than jewels. So when you obey God, you'll be blessed. I'm not saying if you obey God, everybody's going to get a wife like that. It's not what I'm saying. But I am saying in this case, that was part of the promise. Those around you, when you walk in obedience, then you will be blessed and your immediate family will be blessed. I guess what I'm trying to say is, dads, if you want to be a blessing to your kids, the best thing you could ever do is be an obedient father. When you're walking in obedience, your kids are gonna be blessed. When you're walking in obedience, your kids are gonna see Christ. When you're walking in obedience, your kids are gonna be affected by what it is that God's doing in you and through you. This is what we see here in this passage. I just don't have time to unpack it, but there's, there's, you, you can just study it on your own, but there's just, there's just a little bit more there. But I gotta tell you one more thing. I told you there's one more event that happens on Mount Moriah. What do you think it is? There's one more event. We've talked about Abraham sacrificing Isaac. We've talked about David buying the threshing floor. We've talked about King Solomon built the temple. And the last thing that happened on Mount, Mount, on Mount Moriah is that Christ was crucified for you and for me. We call it Mount Calvary. I'm not saying it's the exact spot because we're just not capable as humans to say this is the exact spot and this is exactly where the Temple Mount is and this is exactly where the cross went in. In fact, if you've been to Israel, you understand there's the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. But how far is it from Mount Moriah? It's on this, it would be considered on the same mountain range in the same general area. Can't we say that it's less than a mile? It's like within... What I would say, spitting distance, you can see. When you stand on the Temple of the Mount, you can look across, and within a mile or two, I I didn't do the measurements, but there you see the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, which is a very uh, popular understanding of where Christ was actually crucified. The point is, it's in the same spot, generally speaking, where Christ was crucified. And God may not always provide you with what you want, but he does always provide you with what you need. And God did not spare his own son, but sacrificed his own son in this same place on Mount Moriah, on Mount Zion, on Mount Calvary for your salvation. He's still Jehovah Jireh. He's given Christ to us. And today we got to trust God. We have to trust in Jesus as our only Lord and Savior. Salvation is never based on obedience. Salvation is based on faith and it's based on repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ for your salvation. Salvation. But salvation, while it's by grace alone, it never stays by grace alone. What's added to salvation as you begin to grow is obedience. And as you begin to grow and walk in obedience, then God brings more blessings. He provides salvation, and then he provides the opportunity to live a life of obedience. But it all comes from repenting of your sins and following Christ with all your heart and walking in obedience to God's word. Dads, are you being an obedient father? It's the best gift that you could give to your kids. And so look at the take-home part of our application this morning. Do you obey right away, all the way, and with a happy heart? I'm not talking about your kids. I'm talking about you. Are you obeying right away, all the way, with a happy heart? Number two, obedience doesn't always come easy. And often comes, oftentimes it comes with great cost. But it is easier than disobedience and costs less than losing your soul. You know what's greater cost? Disobedience. Obedience comes with great costs, but disobedience costs more. It could cost you your soul. It certainly costs a whole lot of consequences. It certainly costs a whole lot of time trying to clean up your sin. It certainly costs a whole lot. If you lose your family or lose your job or lose whatever because of your sin, it, 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 it comes with great cost, but it's easier than disobedience and cost less than losing your soul. Jesus said, Mark 8:36. What is what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Third point application, the more obedient you are today, the more you will know about God and experience his love tomorrow. God's blessing continued to follow Abraham, not just this one occurrence, but throughout his son's life, throughout his son's life, all the way leading us to Christ. May these five characteristics of faithful obedience help us to obey God no matter what the cost, knowing that our reward is greater than what we could ever imagine. After our last song, we'll have a few people standing right here, and we'd love to talk to you about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to dive into a familiar passage and probably went a bit long and there's just so many things in here. God, just thank you for teaching us through your word. May this be a devotional opportunity for us as families to rehearse this story, to glean the treasure, to look to Christ and to be filled with motivation to walk in obedience because we we love you and out of gratitude and because we want more of you and we want to see more of you and experience more of you and know more of you and walk more with you. So just forgive us, Lord, of the areas in our life right now that, uh, that we're struggling with full obedience. Pray that you would expose and, and cleanse and forgive and help us as fathers and as, as Christians this morning to look to you and to walk with you and to love you with all of our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.